is it affects the properties of most things it's in. That's why we use it. It has uh, tends to have very high surface area. Uh, an example would be one gram of a clay might have the area of uh, three tennis courts. So a huge area, uh, millions of particles uh, in a gram. Welcome to our latest Hutton Highlights podcast. I'm Elaine Maslin, media officer here at the James Hutton Institute. Through our podcast, we bring you a glimpse into our world-leading research across food, energy and environmental security. Today, we've got a journey into a material that we don't usually give much thought to, but actually it's a material that's literally all pervasive in our lives. We use it to eat and drink from, it's in packing material, cat litter, toothpaste and medicine. It's found just about everywhere where there's land, even in the desert. But surprisingly, we're still learning a lot about it. And not only what it can do for us, our guts or our crops, but also what it can tell us about other planets. The sound you might be able to hear in the background is the machines that we have here to analyze this unique substance. Dr. Steve Hillier has been studying this material for 40 years, 30 of which have been here at the Hutton. So Steve, tell us what I'm talking about. Uh, clay, yeah, it's um, lots of different things to lots of different people, I think. Most people know it if you walk across a wet field on a muddy day, you know, the clay sticks to your boots. It's a material that's used in all kinds of uh, technologies and probably it's kind of like man's oldest material, really. You know, we've always been using it for making pots and, and all sorts of things. And today it's in all kinds of used in all kinds of technological applications. The thing about clay is it affects the properties of most things it's in. That's why we use it. It has uh, tends to have very high surface area. Uh, an example would be one gram of a clay might have the area of uh, three tennis courts. So a huge area, uh, millions of particles uh, in a gram. And most of the reactions um, you know, that take place in the environment take place at surfaces. So the surface of clay just dominates the surface of things like soils and so on. Uh, and, and that's why it's very important. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So one gram of clay has a surface area or can have the surface area of three tennis courts, which is something worth thinking about. I understand that our relationship with the use of clay goes back to prehistoric times, including human health. Yeah, that's right. Uh, some of the evidence goes back to um, prehistory. Some of the early hominids looked like they were actually eating clay. We're, we're not quite sure uh, what for, but but lots of animals also uh, do this. The kind of practice of eating earth is called geophagy. Uh, so animals and humans do it, uh, particularly pregnant women in, in, in some parts of the world. Um, we don't really know wh what it's for, but uh, or, or why they do it. There are a couple of different hypotheses. One is a kind of protection hypothesis. Another one uh, is, is maybe there's some nutritional value from it. And in ancient times, actually, the Greeks uh, used to carry around little coins made of clay. And the idea of this was that you may be drinking your wine or something and, and perhaps, uh, you know, somebody you were having a glass of wine with put some poison in your wine. And, and so if you fell ill after drinking the wine, you would actually eat this coin of clay. Uh, and the idea was that it, uh, it might keep you alive. And, and there's, there's probably some fact behind this, actually, because clays are extremely absorptive. So they could absorb toxins, um, you know, in, in the stomach and, and, and something like that might have kept you alive. There was actually a a famous note of a German doctor treating cholera uh, with clay, he kind of realized that by eating uh, a clay called kaolin, 
it would actually uh, absorb the toxins that were produced by the bacteria. So it didn't kind of cure people of cholera, but it, but it, but it kept them alive uh, by eating it. And clay is still used today in, in, in lots of different sort of medicinal. You can walk into a sort of a pharmacy, certainly in somewhere like Germany, and, and buy a, a bottle of, of clay that you could, uh, you know, take some of and, uh, you know, hopefully makes you feel better from whatever your ailment is. Yeah, no, fantastic. And for us here at the Hutton, our interest in clay is more about soil properties and how the mineralogy of clay influences the fertility of soil. Although we've also been looking at something called halloysite, another type of clay in nanotubes, and more on that later. But first we're going to go from Greek Gaviscon, I know it's not quite Gaviscon, but that's what I'm calling it, to what clay can tell us about life on Mars. This is an area that Dr. Stuart Turner, a mineralogist with a background in planetary science, can tell us more about. Stuart, what and how can clay inform us about life on Mars? So Mars has gone from a very warm and wet environment to a very cold and dry environment. And we know this um, from spacecraft observations, which have observed clays on the surface of Mars, but we know that they couldn't form in the present day environment. So by studying these clays, we can actually unravel what the past environment of Mars was. And that can help us inform arguments around past habitability of the planet. So some of the work looking at life on Mars and what there could be on there is using a mini x-ray diffraction machine on the Mars rover. So um, the x-ray diffraction instrument um, on the Curiosity rover is actually the only x-ray diffraction instrument deployed to another planetary body in the solar system or beyond potentially. Using data from that x-ray diffraction instrument um, we can determine the mineralogy of the surface of the planet also um, potential clay minerals may be present and then that could be taken forward into things like thermochemical modeling and also um, sort of, uh, studies into various aspects of uh, Mars mineralogy and past aqueous history. So Stuart's just mentioned the use of X-ray diffraction on the Mars rover. So I'm going to jump to Helen Pendlovsky, who runs our X-ray diffraction laboratory here at the Hutton. Helen, for those of who's, who don't know what X-ray diffraction is or does, could you enlighten us? Um, yeah, so, well, X-ray diffraction is an analytical technique which we use for phase identification and quantification of crystalline materials. So it, the XRD instrument works by producing X-rays, which are focused onto a sample. Uh, the sample is then scanned through an angular range, and then a detector reads the diffracted X-rays and their intensities. So then the output of the XRD instrument is a diffraction pattern, which is effectively a graph with a range of peaks. Each mineral has its own set of peaks, so it has its own fingerprint, which we then interpret for and are able to identify the minerals present in the samples that we analyse. And is that unique for clays? Presumably there's other things that you could use this for as well as clay. Yeah, so most of the samples here, we're not just looking at the clay minerals, we're looking at all of the minerals present in the samples. And what do we mostly use these machines for here at the Hutton? So we analyse a mixture of samples here in the labs. We see anything, a majority of rocks, soils, uh, pure mineral products. So that can be your pure clays. We see bentonite samples, talc samples. We, see, we also see cement samples and corrosion products. So the list is quite, quite long. Yeah, which sort of highlights how much clay and different materials are used, sort of, basically. Yeah, well, one of the strangest things we've had in the X-ray diffractometer actually was sheep dung. 
uh, at one point where we were looking at the minerals, uh, phosphates and other things in, in sheep dung in, in relation to sort of nutrients uh, with, with a former colleague. And, and that was a quite an interesting sample to put in the lab. We were quite glad actually when we were done with it. Sounds interesting <laughs> on many levels. <laughs> Something else unusual we've been looking at is halocytes. Um, it's a clay. Um, it's also a nanotube with all sorts of potential that sparked a lot of interest over the last decade or so. This is tucked to Nia Gray Wenel's area. Nia, what is halocyte and what's so interesting about it? So halocyte is a nanotubular clay mineral. One way it can be imagined of is like a Swiss roll. So it's rolled up and then on the inside where you would have your cream and your jam in nature often occurs with water there. And it's absolutely tiny. If you imagine the human hair is around 70 micrometers in diameter, halocytes are up to 100 times narrower than that in diameter. So that poses a lot of challenges when you're looking at the surface and doing high quality work on that because of the small size. But presumably that sort of small size and that uniqueness means it has some potentials and what might we be able to do with it? Yeah, interest in halocytes has peaked significantly in the last 20 years. So they've gone from kind of being used as a replacement in ceramics for kaolinites to more um, purposeful use in things like drug delivery systems, in polymer nanocomposites, in lithium batteries, they're used in pollution remediation, all because of the, the nanotube where you can actually fit things on the inside because it's the hollow tube in the middle and then also the, the small size and they're also non-toxic which allows them to be used in medical applications. That sounds like a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, the halocyte nanotubes are basically, um, you know, very, very tiny clay minerals. And you can think of clays as kind of nature's nanomaterials, really. And so increasingly they're being used in sort of nanotechnology applications like the halocyte work that Nia's doing. And I'm going to stick with Steve because um, Steve's a bit of a walking encyclopedia on clay, having um, been studying this material for so many years. Despite having been part of human history since prehistory, it's only relatively recently that we've actually started to know more about clay. Yeah, for a long time, actually, clays were just thought to be amorphous materials. Nobody really knew what was in them. Mineralogists are already, um, you know, uh, worked very intensely on different minerals and, and knew the kind of macroscopic minerals you can find in, in, in rocks and, and, and elsewhere. But clay was a bit of a mystery and it wasn't till the advent of the technique of x-ray diffraction and probably about the 1930s that people started applying it to clay and soil samples, they realized that clays were actually crystalline materials, just very, very fine crystalline materials. So, so that kind of changed the perspective on clays completely. Although somewhat we're kind of moving back the way a little bit now and in terms of particularly the work we do on soils, uh, where we think that sort of what are called paracrystalline, which are kind of like partly crystalline, partly amorphous minerals are probably increasingly important um, in terms of controlling the properties and things of soils. But surprisingly, Steve, we're still learning about clay and not just about clay, but how to be smarter about understanding it um, and the things that it can tell us about soil fertility. Um, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, well, for a long time, we've known clays are really important in controlling the properties of soils, like, like fertility. They absorb lots of things. They can release nutrients. They can bind nutrients. So they kind of control, you know, very much um, or central, if you like, to the management of soils. 
but for a long time, we haven't really been able to sort of systematically um, uh, determine the composition of the clays in soils in, in any kind of a detailed way. And now we're kind of turning to data science to actually do that, where we can process you know, huge numbers of X-ray diffraction patterns. And we've sort of developed a concept called digital soil mineralogy, where we're moving away from the direct interpretation of the patterns to actually using them as signatures that contain information. And then you come back to the properties at the end when you kind of either group your soils together into systematic types uh, or, or, or do other analysis of the data, use, you know, basically using um, high computer power. And I think we've been doing some work using that technique in sub-Saharan Africa, looking at nutrients related to minerals in the soils. That, that's right. We had access to a set of uh, sub-Saharan uh, soil information through the um, AFSIS network, the African Soil Information System. And uh, we, we did a lot of work analyzing the XRD data from there, um, hundreds and hundreds of X-ray diffraction patterns that you couldn't normally process, looking at the relationships between nutrient, nutrients and the minerals in the soil. Uh, and, and that was the kind of some of the first work we were doing on this kind of concept of digital soil mineralogy. And recently, we've also used the soil archive here at the Hunton to do a sort of full look at the entire mineralogy of Scotland using this technique, I think at a 20 square kilometre grid pattern. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're um, moving back to look at that data now. We have fantastic sets of data on, on soils and subsoils uh, from all across Scotland. Uh, and we're using the same techniques now exactly there to sort of try to understand the relationships between property and mineralogy. Uh, and particularly the clays, they can be involved in all kinds of things like, uh, you know, carbon capture. Um, there's a lot of interest at the moment in things like enhanced weathering, where people want to apply rock dust or something to soil. Uh, and the mineralogy and the clay mineralogy of the soils will undoubtedly have, uh, you know, a big influence on, on, on how efficient or, or whether or not, um, you know, initiatives like that may, may actually work in Scottish soils. And having that sort of grid right across Scotland, what does that help us to do? Uh, yeah, it just gives us fantastic coverage of, uh, of all the different soil types uh, in Scotland. I mean, soil is very varied. People often think, you know, there's kind of one type of soil and, and, and far from it. You know, soils are very varied and, and the clay minerals that occur in them are very varied. So just as with, you know, all kinds of other things, uh, you know, you, you, you get different breeds of soils, if you like, and they all behave in, in, in different ways. And that influences decisions that we make about what we do with that land. Yeah, absolutely. The management of soils. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a key aspect of, of that. And uh, many years ago as well, we used to just measure clay as a particle size of a soil. Uh, that's a very simple thing to do, and that's probably why it was done. Uh, but because there are different clay minerals, we now know that that's not really satisfactory. You know, a soil which was full of, um, say, a smectite, uh, which is a very expandable, swelling clay mineral, it's basically what you buy if you buy a bag of cat litter from the supermarket, um, behaves completely different to, say, a kaolinite, uh, which is the kind of thing your china cup is made from. Um, and um, so if you measured the particle size, you might find, you know, both two soils with 30% clay. Uh, but if it's a smectite in one and a kaolinite in the other, the behavior of those soils is going to be radically different for all kinds of things. Yeah, so it could be whether you plant trees or whether you plant crops or different types of crops, yeah. um, all yeah. that variety. Um, do you think you could ever get bored looking at clay? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. No, um, I actually maintain a, a website where we've got lots of images of clay and, and they are fascinating to, to look at. And, and even though I've 
put all the images on there that I've collected from people all over the world. Um, I, I still go back to it from time to time and just browse through them just to, just to have a look at the fantastic shapes. No, you, I, I don't think you can ever get bored of them. A anyone who's ever worked with minerals, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a passion. And uh, I think, uh, you know, when, when you realize how important they are um, in, in relation to human history as well, it, it's fascinating, um, you know, how much we still don't know about them actually um, and, and how much we still to learn. Yeah, I can concur on that website and the images. They're, they're genuinely fascinating. Some architectural, some looking like artistic portraits. Um, and we'll put a link to those in the show notes. So thank you very much. Sadly, that's all we've got time for. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Steve Hillier, Dr. Stuart Turner, Helen Pendlovsky, and Dr. Nia Gray-Wannell. Thank you also to you, the listeners, for joining us. Do like and share the podcast. And of course, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Just search Hutton Highlights Podcast. Until next time, stay safe.